All right, hey, I'm Scott, and it's the 13th of August, and uh, it's a Q&A show where we take questions from the Reddit room, and I answer them. If you want to join up the Reddit room, well, you got to donate five bucks a month by way of PayPal or by way of Patreon.com, and I'll give you the keys to the Reddit group there. Taking a page from Tom Wood's book, only not on Facebook. Um, Gross. Reddit.com slash r slash Scott Horton Show. And I'm talking with uh, Phil from the yes, Reddit room, sir. and and um, he's uh, the stand-in, so I have somebody to talk to while I'm answering these questions instead of just sitting in a room talking to myself, which I hate. Live radio is one thing, but just recording myself in a room and then posting it, I don't like that. So I got uh, Phil here to help me out. So, uh, and also you've been taking the questions and taking note of them, right? <laughs> Yeah, I even printed them and got them in PDF files. So God, I am ship shape ready. Yeah, I, I'm prepared, man. You got it going on. All right. Well, hi, and uh, thanks for doing this. And so what's the first question? Oh, I guess what I could is- introduce myself for people who don't know. I'm the editorial director of antiwar.com, and I'm the director of the Libertarian Institute, and I'm the host of the Scott Horton Show, which is like a foreign policy podcast type thing, and anti-war radio on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Okay, sorry, go ahead. Oh, and he's also the writer of Fool's Errand, Time to End the War in, in Afghanistan. Oh, that's and right. he just is wrapping up a fund drive that was doing uh, double funding, double, uh, or uh, what was that? Matching funds. Buy back to Matching funds. Yeah. That's the one. That's over. Uh, that was excellent. I'm super pumped about that. But if you still want to donate, you should. If you know what's good for you. And Scott, and that's all and toward the, the writing of the next book, which is Time to End the War on Terrorism. Something yes. like that. Yes. I should have said that first, but yeah, it's neither whatever. here nor there. Let's jump into the questions. Why does the U.S. need Saudi Arabia? Is it just oil, Israel, and geopolitics? Yeah, well, so America has a policy that it really is a self-licking ice cream cone here where – yeah. Um, it's it's a big case of question begging, essentially. The presumption is that America must have military dominance over the planet uh, for the good of the entire world, beginning with the Americans. And so if American companies have investments in the Middle East, America's military must be there to secure them. And, you know, that's one major part of it anyway. But then... Because of the doctrine of, you know, military hegemony over the entire planet, essentially, then you have all these special interests who are involved. So a big one is the arms industry, which has their own interest in Saudi Arabia and keeping Saudi Arabia buying their weapons. Then you have, of course, the financial industry who are dependent on the Saudis recycling all of those petrodollars into American securities and into American corporations and banks and whatever. They could do all their business somewhere else. So the idea is that we have to have all this policy to keep them in our corner, essentially. And it's not in the interest of the American people or the American nation in any kind of broader view. But of course, it's very much in the interest of certain interests in the country. I thought it created jobs. Well, you know, in Iraq War One, Bush Senior said, um, "This is about, or is James Baker, Secretary of State, said this is about jobs, jobs, jobs." But the question was, which ones? 
Um, in fact, America never even bought that much oil from Kuwait. And I think people say the British did, but the British didn't even really buy that much of their oil as much as just the Kuwaitis had a lot of cash invested in England. So this was a big part of the reason that Margaret Thatcher twisted Bush's arm and got him to agree to launch the war. So in other words, all that happened. Just think about what the opposite case would have been, right? If just some companies in England had to take a hit or the Bank of England had to take a hit on the loss of some Kuwaiti investments. I don't care about that. Imagine buying a three decade long war against these helpless people over Margaret Thatcher's concerns about Kuwaiti investments in the city of London. Uh, You know, which is essentially part you know how the current iraq war got started way back then so um in the case of saudi arabia they buy a lot of treasury uh, notes they buy a lot of weapons and they sell oil to our allies if not to america which is now again an oil exporter um but um you know i think when you listen to all these pundits and think tankers and whatever talk a lot of times they're telling the truth about what they believe And they state it very plainly that America must lead the world. We must guarantee security. We must be the dominant force everywhere or someone else will. And can you imagine? And so when you have Iran, Iraq and Saudi Arabia, these oil giants right there all and Kuwait for that matter, um, all contiguous with each other right there in the Middle East. Either going to let these people call their own shots or you're going to call them. And so then, you know, as Jimmy Carter declared, see, this is part of the irony of the thing. And this is in the new book, too, is is a big new Brzezinski, the national security advisor, came to Jimmy Carter and said, listen, let's start backing the Mujahideen in Afghanistan and that'll provoke the Russians into invading. And then we'll bog them down and bleed them to bankruptcy, just like Osama bin Laden's going to do to us 30 years from now. It'll be great. And Carter said, okay, yeah, let's do that. Now it's on July 3rd, 1979. They launched this operation uh, to start backing the Mujahideen to make matters worse for the communists in Kabul and to force the Soviets' hand to come and intervene on their behalf. And as soon as they did, Carter and the rest of his government panicked and said, oh no, what if they invaded Iran next? then we would see this huge expansion of the Soviet Union and they would then have dominance in the Persian Gulf. It's called the Persian Gulf for a reason. Well, but America had provoked them, had given them reason to invade Afghanistan. Although, by the way, it is kind of dubious that that was the direct cause and effect there. In fact, their local commie sock puppet was such a basket case that when they got there, the first thing they did was betray him and kill him. Uh, the KGB took him out back and shot him, essentially, you know, something like that. The first day they were in town. They just um, didn't like him or like, like uh, you're not, you you're know, not giving enough dictator? I'm sitting here spaced now because I'm trying to remember what article I read about two or three years ago. That was the in-depth story of his death and how he thought that the KGB was on his side up until near the very end when he's holed up in his house and they came to get him and. I just There's can't remember weird, for like, the life of me of where like I the read that politics of that, of like the people they like put up and they like took out and then like people against each other, like just in like Afghanistan. It, it is very confusing. Yeah, it's hard. And it's a lot of footnotes to keep straight. But anyway, right. screw it. Sorry. So 
the point is, though, that they imagined that the Soviets might roll into Iran next. Well, and I've heard this a few different times from people that back at the time that this was a real concern, but they never really say based on what, that the Soviets ever really gave any indication that they were going to invade Iran. Um, and so, you know, America turned around and had Saddam invade Iran instead, essentially, just a couple of months later. But uh, in the meantime, they declared this Carter Doctrine of American supremacy in the Persian Gulf. I said, this is an American lake. It's not the Persian Gulf. It's the American Gulf. And we will be the dominant power here. And if anyone else tries to become the dominant power in the region, then they're picking a fight with the United States. You know, like saying, if you nuke France, then we take that as an attack on us under our NATO obligations or this level of commitment which, you know, FDR had made a commitment to the Saudis way back after World War II on the way home from Yalta. But oh. um, he, uh, you know, Carter really upped the level of of uh, commitment there in this new Carter doctrine. And so and we've been bound essentially to war in that region ever since then, backing Saddam Hussein, then encouraging him to go ahead and invade the northern half of Kuwait, then attacking him when he went ahead and went too far and took the whole country and then strangling Iraq um, in you know under the blockade through the entire 1990s in order to try to force regime change that never happened, then launching an unprovoked war to try to finish that job, which then only you know did not empower the Saudis and their friends. It empowered the Iranians and their friends. And so then now, as I'm continually talking about, because I think it's the key to understanding all of what's going on in the region right now, is the redirection policy under George W. Bush and Elliot Abrams when they figured out, and Zalmay Khalilzad, when they figured out that they had done, there was no mistaking what they had done for Iran here, and that in order to try to make it up to the Saudis, that they would then uh, start backing al-Qaeda again against the Shia and their friends in the region. And that's been the policy ever since then. And it's all to please a king who I think it's kind of embedded in this question here is why do we care about these people? You got some crazy Bedouin kings out there in the middle of nowhere uh, sitting on some oil wealth. And yes, you know, you do have Exxon and whatever American corporations are tied with them is certainly part of it. But why is the American state bound forever to the fate of this royal family, this tyranny? Which, listen, they just a couple of months ago, uh, a month ago, they executed a whole gang of, what, 30-something Shiite dissidents who were just protesters. They weren't terrorists. They hadn't attacked the state. They were just saying, hey, how about a little bit of our rights? And the, the uh, Saudi state mercilessly repressed them, arrested all their leaders, and beheaded them all. And their leader, they crucified his headless corpse to make an example out of him for the rest of them. This is for showing up at a protest. Um, you Where know, this, this is one of the most backward societies in the world, and we stamp it with brand USA and guarantee its security against its own people, against any of its external threats that they themselves tend to generate. And for what? No reason that any politician could articulate to the American people with a straight face. Did I lose you, Phil? Oh, no, I thought you were going to keep on going there. Um, yeah, go ahead. Oh, is it, wait, that happened in Saudi Arabia or 
Iran. Yeah, the, and the Saudi protests. Arabia. Okay. Okay, they were just Shiites that were living there. Okay. Yeah, Shia and the Shia minority in Saudi, they happen to live right on the oil land. It's a bit of a problem for the monarch. Yeah, and um, like going back to them, just it, uh, or wouldn't you have Ben Freeman on, or whoever went to sit in at the Natural Conservative Convention just now? I mean, they're totally throwing the whole like neocon thing aside, and they're just being up in front, like they're not using the BS, like oh, this is for democracy now. They're actually in there saying no, like America is like it, we don't need the new world order. It's just like you know the lady who said like at the UN, you know. Um, they are just there because they think that America is the world empire. And like they need, need to be number one. So they're like, there is no shame about it anymore. Right. They're in the world government. They just think America's the world government. That's all. Yeah. Um, quick question. So I'm trying to look back from the notes I took last time on Iraq, but, um, who's the guy that like virtual Pearl and all of them wanted to throw in as, um, like after they overthrew a rock who they want to put in and leave, like I just yeah, want to know, like Chalabi. Yeah, like well, how is he significant at all? Was he just a, yeah. some dictator they found that suited, or like? Well, yeah, no. So great question. Um, he's the man who sold the war. He's a self-described hero in error, who sold the American media and the American state, the neoconservatives especially, on regime change in Iraq. He's Did an Iraqi he help, dissident. Like, draft the- Sorry, what now? Did he help draft the clean break or something? Or like how far back does that yeah, go? Like what well, exactly did he, he didn't, contribute? Yeah, he didn't sign it or draft it, but they quote him in it. Or actually, I'm not sure if they quote him directly in a clean break or maybe only in the companion piece, Coping with Crumbling States. Uh, but yeah. he's certainly the myth maker there. And so basically he's an, he was a, a fraudster embezzler and was convicted in absentia in Jordan for embezzlement from a bank there. He was an Iraqi exile, and he was sponsored by Iran, and everybody knew he had a headquarters in Tehran for his group, the Iraqi National Congress. And yet, for whatever reason, the neocons just chose to believe whatever shit he was shuffling, which was not just, oh, here are a bunch of anecdotes about weapons of mass destruction, which he was the primary uh, you know, fencer of those lies, so to speak. But before that, he sold them on the strategy. He sold um, not just Pearl and Wolfowitz, um, but you know their whole kind of little group, David Wormser and Douglas Fife and all these guys essentially bought his line that if they get rid of the Baathists in Iraq, first of all— Who were they? Were they the standing government there? Who were the Baathists? That's Saddam Hussein's government, was the Baathists, okay, cool. the secular yeah. fascists. Sunni party, uh, Sunni dominated party. Anyway, um, so if you would get rid of Saddam, uh, huh? Sorry. So Chalabi is still a Shia or no? Yeah, he's a Shia. So he's saying if you get rid of Saddam, then what we'll do is we'll get a Hashemite king, a cousin of the king of Jordan, and he will come in and rule the country and it'll be great. Now, they ended up changing that plan to, well, you just make me the dictator of the country and it'll be great. But this does imply, if you're, you know, reading between the lines here, a massive shift in power from the Sunni minority to the Shiite majority. But don't worry, it'll be fine. Not only will it be fine, but rather than empowering Iran, it will give us dominance over Iran. 
because by dominating the Iraqi Shia, who love to be dominated, by the way, and they'll just absolutely do as they're told and bend right over because that's how they like living. And is that is that sarcasm? No, that's in there. That they oh. they will be totally oh, compliant and will not be a problem, and we will use them to set an example for the people of Iran that these are the benefits of complying with America's wishes. And, you know, we'll lift the sanctions off them and let them make their oil money and have their country under their Hashemite king or under Chalabi or whatever, and it'll all be fine. It'll be easy. And the people of Iran, they must agree with Michael Ledeen about how much they hate their government. And so if we can only show them the, you know, um, the benefits of quote-unquote democracy, meaning majority rule, Shiite rule in Iraq under American dominance, then they'll go for it. They'll love it, and they'll stab the Ayatollah and kill him and install a pro-American government, and then we'll move on from there, and it'll be great. And now, you know, you might be saying, this is so stupid, they couldn't possibly have believed it, and I would say, okay, you make a good point. I mean, there's, it could well be argued that this was simply a pretext for war, and that David Wormser and Paul Wolfowitz and Richard Pearl understood that it was not going to be as easy as Chalabi said, but that, oh, well, you know, if we end up just shattering Iraq into warring pieces for years, then that suits our wishes, too. You know, as long as they're not a unified state threatening Israel and, as they put it, somewhat accurately, financing suicide bombers, which he didn't really finance Hamas directly, I don't think. But what he did was he paid any family of any Palestinian who died in conflict with Israel, no matter what. So if it was an old lady who got bulldozed to death in her house, she got her family got some money. But if it was a suicide bomber who killed some Israeli civilians, they got some money too. And even though they didn't push this on the American people that much as a major reason for the war against Iraq in 03, they definitely mentioned that to themselves and at their conferences and things. And you could tell if you're looking closely that this was high on their list of reasons to attack was... You know, again, it wasn't direct financing of suicide bombing, but you could see why they would spin it that way. And then it's not an attack on the United States of America. It's somebody else's problem. But from their point of view, hey, they have all the levers of power in the American Pentagon. They can do what they want. So anyway, then Chalabi and his Iraqi National Congress, they came up with all the lies about the biological, mobile, uh, biological weapons laboratories, the warehouses uh, or the factories where they're cranking out chemical weapons and the warehouses where they're storing them. The, uh, you know, I got a nuclear reactor buried in my front garden and all of these lies. Um, the aluminum tubes, that was the CIA made up those lies. And the uh, ties to Al-Qaeda, those were tortured out of Al-Qaeda guys by the CIA, who then said, fine, fine, Saddam taught me how to hijack planes. Just take the needles out from under my fingernails, would you? And then... Um, that kind of thing. But anyway, the, the vast majority of all the talking points about uh, Iraq and the weapons came from Ahmed Chalabi and his group. And then when they invaded and there were no weapons anywhere, he gave an interview to the Telegraph where they said, man, you know, you told the American people there were all these weapons. They were going to stop the weapons. And he just laughed and shrugged his shoulders and said, hey, we're heroes in error. <laughs> Sorry for doing such a good job lying you into this wonderful, successful war. And he ended up being the oil minister for a while. He did have some credibility among the Shia because his family had helped finance the upkeep of a shrine in Najaf 
for many years. So he had a little bit of credibility there, but I'm sorry, not where's very that? Much. Huh? Where's Najaf? In Iraqi Shia Stan, near okay. Baghdad. Uh, to the east of Baghdad, I guess. Um so uh but in Shiite territories, a Shiite shrine that his family so he had a little bit of street credibility among those. But he could have never been the dictator. And I think Why? Bush, I think Bush right away realized and said, Chalabi is not my guy right after the war. And then the neocons, you know, Richard Pearl and them complained about that. They go, look, man, our whole plan (laughs) was to install this guy and leave, not to sit here and recreate their society for him and stay. Wait, wait, the neocons are saying this? Yeah. The the neocons, you know, their idea was that Chalabi could handle it and and that. And the military could withdraw to their bases that they would keep permanent bases there. But they didn't so want they to occupy the whole the country. BS that was that more preach. like the State Department plan, you know, and the Democrats' plan. <clears throat> Not so that I'm saying were, the neocon plan was any better, but I'm just saying they were different and in conflict. That's all. But they actually practiced the BS. They're going to have a democracy like they preached. Well, no. I mean, a big part of what happened was the Americans had a plan for what they called a, which I guess this was the State Department CIA guys. And the plan was to have a caucus system where, in other words, the party bosses in the smoke-filled room in the back decide. And then I think the eye was toward fairness, that they would try to pick from different sectarian categories and try to have some equal representation, which people at the time said, oh, see how they're trying to divide us. But what happened instead was much more divisive. What happened instead was that the Supreme Ayatollah Ali al-Sistani, who is even a higher religious rank than the Ayatollah Khamenei in Iran, he came out in January of 04 and he said, hey, if you believe in God, I want you to go outside and demand one man, one vote from George W. Bush. And they did. Like the entire Shiite population of Iraq went outside and said to George Bush, you want to start this war all over again? We want one man, one vote, no caucus system, no handpicked leaders by you. And at that point, the game was up. From that point, that's January 04. Every moment of that war after that, America was fighting for Iran and for Iran's friends, the Dawa Party, the Supreme Islamic Council, really, and uh, and the, the Bada Brigade, their army. But yeah. really, this had been the case from the very beginning. But at that point, the gig was up. There's no way to deny it. So, yeah, you know, all the best laid plans of mice and men. And then, you know, um, I should recommend this thing by Andrew Basevich that he wrote, I think, for Harper's. I'm going to say Harper's. And it was about Paul Wolfowitz and how Paul Wolfowitz had been right about a couple of things. Um, one of them may have been Ferdinand Marcos and his, the fall of his regime in the Philippines in 86, something like that. And then another one was, I think that Wolfowitz had predicted the invasion of Kuwait and had been dismissed at the time. He was a, in the defense department under Dick Cheney at the time in, in 91. And so then he had like a couple of good, a couple of good guesses. So he was and saying, then, don't take the Northern oil fields. Huh? Wolfowitz at that time was saying, "Don't let." No, Iraq Wolfowitz try to- wasn't talking to the 
Iraqis. He was just telling other Americans, this is what I think Saddam is going to do. Yeah, and they yeah. were saying, no, we don't think so or what, you know. And see, okay. it's it's hard to piece all this together in terms of chronology and different bureaucrats and different departments. I mean, the CIA was apparently telling the Kuwaitis to stand up to Iraq. At the same time, the State Department was telling Iraq, go ahead and take the northern oil fields. Then you got the Defense Department, Paul Wolfowitz and the guys in the Defense Department. I don't think they had, I'm not sure if they had a voice in that either way, as much as just Wolfowitz was saying, here's what it looks like is going to happen to me. So, you know, I'm not exactly sure all the lines of communication and what have you, but all I'm trying to say is... Well, the problem is, like, there is no communication. As we talked about on the last episode, like, all of these debar- departments hate each other, so they'll do anything to... Like that's a huge part of it a lot of times. And you know what? A lot of times they do work together on things. So it could have been a matter of entrapping Saddam into it, although that's not my interpretation. It is a fair one. But the point is that Wolfowitz had a couple of wins and he had a reputation of being smart guy Wolfowitz. And nobody believed in that more than he did. So the idea is that that's the fatal flaw, is that power doesn't just corrupt. Power makes you stupid and makes you think <laughs> you're really smart at the same damn time. I think you know Derek what I mean? Ford like Phil, too, you could be that, right but. about a few things, but if you're right about a, th- a few things that really matter in the world, then it's, it seems like you're really right when you're just, yeah. <laughs> you're right as, as anyone else is right sometimes. You know what I mean? But <laughs> in, so, wrong. I would write back broken clocks wrong. I mean, yeah, I write yeah. twice a day. Right. So, so Basevich wrote this. It's, I think it's in the form of like an open letter to Wolfowitz or, nice. or maybe not, but he's just like ratting on him. He's just telling the story of how Wolfowitz got convinced that he was a brilliant genius and that if he said something was right, that he was always right and people should listen to him and do it his way. And the fact that he believed that helped to convince other people to believe it too. And then look at what a a terrible mess he got us in. And, you know, there's been just a couple of times since then, since he, you know, was fired from the Bush administration, finally, that he's been, you know, questioned in public about it in any way. And you can tell it's written all over his face that he knows he ruined everything. He's smart enough to be able to examine the true repercussions of what he did. So one example of that is when he was at the World Bank, he was kicked upstairs to the World Bank kind of thing. And at a press conference, um, somebody said to him, hey, man, hundreds of thousands of Iraqis are dead. Everything is in shambles. You ruined everything. What do you have to say for yourself? And he said, well, I don't owe you an explanation. I don't have to answer that. There, there's no law that says I have to answer that. So I'm not going to. Bye. And then he turns around and walks out of the room. Like it's the most ridiculous, clumsy kind of a thing where he, he knows he has nothing to say. In his defense. So all I can say is, you know what? Essentially tough. I'm not going to give you, I'm not going to dignify you people with a recognition that, yeah, I was wrong at all. And then the other one was when Ron Paul called him out at the debate in 2012. It was the AEI heritage debate. And the whole crowd is full of neocons. And Danielle Pletka, who was you know, uh, Ahmed Chalabi's probably number one booster in the media in the run up to the war, by the way, tried to say to Ron Paul, oh, when you want to cut and run and let Al Qaeda grow in strength or something, something. And she said something. I forgot the, exactly the question, but the word Somalia was in there somewhere. And Ron goes, what's that young lady like cups his ear? What's that? I couldn't quite hear you. You said something about Somalia. Well, anyway, 
Here's the deal, man. It's staying in places like Somalia and Saudi that gets us attacked in the first place. Why? Mm-hmm. There's Paul Wolfowitz. Tell him, Paul. Paul Wolfowitz, <laughs> he explained that the reason that Saddam Hussein attacked us was because of all of our bases in Saudi Arabia in the first place. Isn't that right? And, of course, it's true. And Wolfowitz routinely invoked that as a reason to invade Iraq. We'll just move our bases out of Saudi, out of Saudi into Iraq, and it'll be great. Everybody will love it. That was his reasoning, and that was one of his excuses that he invoked over and over again. But so when Ron Paul goes, yeah, see, tell him, Paul Wolfowitz, I'm right, that Osama attacked us not because of Islam, but because of American combat forces on his soil there. And Wolfowitz does a thing, you know, that uh, body language type of a deal where he puts his thumbnail in his mouth, pad up, you know, nail down. So he's like got a fist, but it's almost like he's sucking his thumb. You know what I mean? It's like he's in suck his thumb position, but he's just biting the nail. And then he sinks down in his chair. Like if it was a sitcom, there would be a sound effect for busted. And the whole place is looking at him and he's just sinking and sinking. Yeah. He said if we just invaded Iraq instead, it'd be great. Rod's just clowning the shit out of him in front of everybody. And, and he doesn't sit up straight and tall and go, well, I did my best or whatever. You know what I mean? Instead, he like wants to turn and run. Wow. But he knows he's guilty as hell. Not that he'd ever admit it or pay any restitution. And, and again, like the main thing that we're like busting him for is what is guilty is leading the Iraqi surge. Like, is that like the main thing that he Ooh, did that was Paul just awful? Wolfowitz? Or, no. Boy, yeah. you're young. You don't remember any of this stuff. I don't. No, Wolfowitz was gone before the surge, dude. Uh, Wait, wait, so why? You're thinking of David Petraeus, the general. I'm talking about Paul Wolfowitz, the neocon. He's never been in a fight in his life. Oh, yeah. Oh, wait a minute. David Petraeus has never been in a fight in his life either. Sorry. Go ahead. What? Why is Paul Wolfowitz so hated? Like, what's the one thing that he did? He was the primary architect of the war. He was the the most powerful neocon Ahead even of Pearl and influence. He was the deputy secretary of defense under Rumsfeld. And every time that Cheney or Bush or Rumsfeld or anyone had any questions about who's going to work, right? Paul Wolfowitz said, yeah, it's going to work all right. He was the guy who on September 11th said, we've got to attack Iraq. He was the guy who on September 15th at the National Security Council meeting, Bush told Andrew Card to tell Paul Wolfowitz to shut the fuck up about Iraq already. We heard you, Paul. <laughs> Why is the deputy still talking? And where even Dick Cheney is intervening and saying, stop. We're going to hit Afghanistan. We'll talk about Iraq next week. Everybody shut up about Iraq for now. That's who Paul Wolfowitz was. In fact, you know... At the risk of pissing off the truthers, I think this is part of the explanation for September 11th getting by the White House level. The CIA was coming to Bush and to Rice and the rest and saying this Al-Qaeda thing is important. And Wolfowitz and the neocons were saying, no, it's not. Don't trust the CIA. They're trying to distract you with this bogus Al-Qaeda stuff. And then we're going to be stuck in Afghanistan. And how are we going to hit Iraq then? It's all about Baghdad. Osama bin Laden can wait, essentially. Whatever his problem is, is not enough to concern us now. And and we got to go, you know, Baghdad is our first priority, and Al-Qaeda is a distraction from that, rather than, you know, a wonderful excuse that we're biding our time to, to glom onto. 
that just became apparent later that day. Hey, cool. <laughs> we could use this as an excuse to go to wreck just because that was the single minded focus of especially Paul Wolfowitz, probably more than any of them. So, yeah. yeah. So if, if Richard Pearl was like the Prince of Darkness, then, you know, Wolfowitz was probably the king. Yeah. You know what Wolfowitz is, is he's the nutty professor, man. Again, he's the guy who, you know, as opposed to Richard Pearl, who I think is a really ruthless political operator type, I think Wolfowitz is the idea, man. And he believes in himself to the detriment of all of the rest of us. It's his worst attribute. And, you know, a lot of them are like that. But it's a pretty big gamble to say, let's start a war, because I bet it's going to work the way I think it's going to work. Well, uh, it didn't, so... So what's right. next on the list here? How much are the do-gooder R2P wars? Do you, what is that? What is that? That's responsibility to protect. That's uh-huh. the doctrine that says, even though the UN uh-huh. charter describes sovereign states, actually, when the allies say that you're not protecting your own people good enough, then they can invade and get involved in a civil war or anything less than that if they want to. Gotcha. All right. Um, on that case, how much are... Are the do-gooder RTP wars based on actual concern for zero uh, repressed people? Oh, do you see that? Yeah, I mean, it depends on who you ask, right? Um, uh, well, here, I, I'll, I'll finish it real quick, just okay. so people like know. Um, sorry, it's kind of a long question. Yeah, how much are the RTP wars based on actual concern for rep- repressed people versus geopolitical slash material concerns? Not many talking heads say a word about it. At the same time, everyone, every one of those talking heads drone on about how terrible it is, um, how terrible Iran is. How do they decide which country is right for regime change? Oh, good question. Yeah. Well, I mean, well, I mean the last Iran's part first. The, like, they're compliant or they're not. It has nothing to do with the level of human rights abuses. Again, our friends, the Saudis crucify corpses to yeah. make points, uh, you know, headless corpses of people that they beheaded. So it's not about human rights. It's about whether they're compliant or not. And then human rights makes a great excuse, just as we saw with Saddam Hussein. I can't believe you're defending Saddam Hussein. I'm not defending Saddam Hussein. I'm saying you are dumber than he is cruel. I can't believe you're on his side. And it's the same thing they do with Bashar al-Assad. Well, don't you know Bashar al-Assad kills people? Well, yeah, he's the head of a government. Of course he kills people. But you think that's why America's against him? Ask Barack Obama. He'll tell you. Oh, what? Human? Yeah, yeah. Human rights concerns. Anyway, the real point is, Jeffrey Goldberg, yes, it would help weaken Iran if we got rid of their friend Assad in Syria. After Bush gave them Baghdad, maybe we can take Damascus away as a consolation prize. Oh, I mean, what I mean is, oh, look at the tiny helpless people got hurt. Give me a break. How could anybody believe that they believe that? Now, at the same time, it's true that, I mean, essentially, like if you think it's, you know, Susan Rice, Hillary Clinton and Samantha Power mongering a war in Libya, then, you know, Hillary Clinton was looking for election 2016. She believes America loves hawks, you know, and especially if she's a Democrat and a woman, then she has to be the meanest, most militarist secretary of state in history so she can run on that in 2016 because she didn't learn the lesson that that's why she lost in 2008. And um, so 
that was her policy, and you can read it in the emails. The ones released by the State Department were... Uh, her and her aides are talking about how they're going to frame this whole thing. It's Hillary's war. This is your war, boss. You did it. And we're going to run your whole campaign based on this and all of these things. Such leadership qualities in your pantsuit and blah, blah, blah. Then with, um, you know, Susan Rice, I guess she was, you know, going along. I don't know exactly what all um, her different uh, interests were there and probably just pleasing Saudi patrons or whatever was her deal. But Samantha Rice, this was her opportunity to get a promotion because in the campaign of 2008, she had chosen Obama and called Hillary Clinton a monster. And so when Hillary Clinton got the secretary of state job, oops, that meant that Samantha Power was uh, regulated to some lower position on the National Security Council. And so when the Libya war came up, Samantha Power said she was tired of all this do-gooder, rinky-dink stuff that she had been assigned to on the NSC. Get this, like helping Iraqi reconciliation in the time between Iraq War II and Iraq War III breaking out there. Um, all this do-gooder, rinky-dink stuff. She wanted a promotion and some attention from the boss and, you know, TV for her future career. And she had written a book called A Problem from Hell about how, geez, sometimes you have these third world dictators engage in these, uh, you know, horrible massacres. And here you have the third, you know, uh, infantry division could stop it or the first airborne or whatever could go in there and stop it since we're the USA and we can do anything. And so we should have this doctrine where the part of the UN Charter that says, stay the hell out of our country and we'll stay the hell out of yours, we're going to ignore that. And we're going to have this doctrine that says we can intervene not only when Saddam crosses into Kuwait over an international border, a fake one drawn by the British anyway, but anyway, um, no, we can intervene, intervene in your civil war, like Rwanda in 94, or like in Bosnia in 2000, or uh, 1994, or in Kosovo in 1999. And so... This was their big chance. And so they framed the whole thing um, as she helped frame the whole thing as a humanitarian war to save the people of Libya from Muammar Gaddafi. And then they just made up this bogus scam that Gaddafi was certain to kill every man, woman and child in Benghazi. As uh, Obama put it when he was declaring war uh, illegally by himself while traveling in Brazil at the time, he said, imagine the city of Charlotte, North Carolina, and every living person in it executed, exterminated, and killed. That's what we're up against in Libya, which was just such a lie. I mean, Bill Clinton at least pretended that Milosevic had already killed uh, two, uh, uh, 10,000, 100, pardon me, 100,000 uh, Albanian Kosovar civilians, which was a total lie. But in this case, they just lied that that was what was going to happen, even though that was completely crazy. Gaddafi could have killed every man, woman, and child in Benghazi over and over his whole life long. The guy's been the dictator for 40 years. Why is he going to all of a sudden do that right now? Just because there's an uprising there, he's going to kill everyone in the city the size of Charlotte? <laughs> Who's, where are you making up this crap from? They just make it up. He'd already His forces had already taken back four or five or ten towns and hadn't exterminated civilians in any of them in defeating the militias and then moving on to the next one. The whole thing was just preposterous. But then, is it hard to imagine Samantha Power and Hillary Clinton 
you know, and, 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 uh, you know, all their advisors, uh, like, uh, Anne Marie Slaughter and all these do-gooder limousine liberal warmonger types, you know, drinking their wine and nodding and agreeing with each other that we're saving the people. We're doing a good thing. We're stopping a massacre. We're heroes. Look at, we're girl power, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Oh yeah, dude. It's perfect for them. You know? It's, they do it, even though it's not them doing it, right? It's all the men of the Air Force who are actually doing all of the killing. But for them, it's their vicarious exercise of power. And, you know, I bet if you waterboarded Samantha Power, she would say, we saved some lives, and would insist that she believes in her lies and that there was there was some kind of motive other than a promotion for herself But that's a direct quote from uh, Michael Hastings piece in Rolling Stone about the Libya war that from, you know, his sources inside the White House, inside the Obama White House, Samantha Power was tired of all this do gooder rinky dink stuff. And she wanted a better position in the White House. And she saw the war in Libya as her chance, which you can't get any more just, uh, you know, public choice theory, libertarian, individualist, economic thinking than that when it comes to politics you know that's exactly how it works there is no national interest there's only the national interest of the screeching valkyries in charge of the national security council yep uh so i think we should kind of cover the whole uh pipe dream of uh, no pun intended intended here but putting that new oil pipe um, up through Saudi Arabia, up into like Russia and all that, and having that be American dominated, but basically like Syria is just like in the way, um, and basically like that's a Saudi effort. Well, Russia is our oil exporters, so, and you know what? I think that pipeline politics thing about Syria is overblown. Gareth Porter wrote a great piece debunking that. That was already off before their problems with Syria. You know, long before their problems with Syria came up. There are all different plans for different pipelines in different places, and I'm not experts on all of them, but, you know, Robert Kennedy Jr. had written this giant thing about Syria is all about the oil pipelines, but that's not true. It's not even, like, a little bit true because of, like, how crucial the petrodollar is and the whole, like... No, because, look, man, Saudi Saudi Arabia doesn't have any problem putting oil on ships and sailing them away. It's not like they're landlocked and... You know, the oil pipeline in Afghanistan in the 90s was a big deal because the idea was cutting the Russians out and taking oil out of the Caspian Basin, rooting it straight south through Afghanistan and Pakistan to the port of Karachi to try to limit, you know, try to diversify and, you know, get up and running and, and producing as much Caspian oil as possible out from under the influence of the Russians at the time. But... You know, when it comes to an oil pipeline from Saudi through Jordan and Syria to where Turkey, I mean, they can just do all that by ship anyway. So it's not like it's make or break. All of these countries have access to the ocean. I mean, I guess Iran is under U.S. sanctions, so no one will float their oil out. But um, as far as the pipelines go, I think those are the kinds of things that'd be nice, but I don't think that's what the wars are over. I gotcha. So, uh, crap. I forgot what I was going to ask. Great. Oh, no. I just wanted to, uh, to bring up that it, it totally makes sense to 
with the oil in Afghanistan because Russia was actually trying to, I guess, conquer and bay whatever. That's a good enough reason. But, you know, as far as so-called Iranian influence in Syria, no one is really invading and is like a threat to the oil like pipelines there. We just make the threats ourselves with like ISIS and everything. So, I mean, I guess a hawk could back up their assertion that, oh, we're preventing Russian invasion in Afghanistan, so we have to protect that oil. But, you know, they just kind of like make the threats themselves when it comes to Syria. Well, no, I mean, even on the former point, they never claimed it was defensive. The Russians had withdrawn from Afghanistan and it was there's no oil in Afghanistan. It was oil from Turkmenistan. They just wanted to build a pipeline across Afghanistan and they needed the Taliban to help secure the place to try to do it. And I'm not saying that's the policy anymore. Sorry, it's Russia not, needed the Taliban or we needed no, the Taliban? No, the U.S. did. Yeah. Oh. The point was, Ain't if you look at funny. a map, if you look at a map, the whole south of Asia is all those stands there and they'll have oil resources. And so are we going to let the Russians keep those oil resources off the market so that they can have, you know, further economic uh, sway in Europe, or are we going to go ahead and try to screw the Russians by developing all that oil without them and getting it all to the market in a way that they have no influence over? So that was the Bill Clinton policy in the 1990s is what I'm talking about. No one said it was defensive. It was all about expanding America's influence, uh, the policy of enlargement of the world empire, in parentheses there. Um you know, but yeah, look, as far as Iran building a pipeline across Iraq, including across Western Iraq, Jihadi Stan and into <laughs> Syria, um, then they get what advantage there? They can sell to Turkey um, or the, the Europeans aren't going to buy Iranian oil unless the Americans are allowing it anyway. And then again, how much difference does a pipeline make than boats? You know, in yeah. other words, how far was Iran willing to go to try to push that pipeline through? I have no indication that they were even working on it. Right. It was like a thing that they were had planned. But not unless they want to get new. Yeah. But look, that's not why the Americans launched the war against Assad just to try to stop Iran from building a pipeline through there. They had a hell of a lot more reasons than that. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure most of it was coming from the clean break and just having that like melting pot of chaos around Israel. And look, I mean, the thing is, too, is and maybe they're stupid, but Iran <laughs> could never build a pipeline across Western Iraq and think that it would be secure there. And they know that. So what's the worry? There shouldn't be one. Well, we know that they'll come up with one just for expedience. Well, you know, did you see the blog at the Institute today? I got this quote from Cory Booker accusing uh, Trump. Uh, it's hilarious. Accusing Trump of abandoning Israel and putting them in all this danger. And when, of course, he's done everything that they've wanted, including move the embassy to Jerusalem and all this stuff. <clears throat> but Booker complains. He says, we have a president we literally have a president right now that has allowed Iran to have a superhighway through Syria. Huh? And then he the says... The land bridge? That, that literally... Yeah. That, which there's no superhighway um, across <laughs> western Iraq. Um, 
you know, which is what he's trying to say from from Iran through Iraq and into Syria. And whatever highways are in Syria or in the west of the country, there's no giant east-west superhighway under the control of Iran. I mean, this is just make-believe. Then he says that literally announces by tweet he's pulling out troops, which puts Israel at more risk. Which is just another way to say American troops are in Syria for Israel. They're not there to secure America's national interests. They're there to secure Israel's natural interests. And that puts Syria at risk of what? That Iran is going to build some giant offensive military capability in Syria right under Israel's nose. And that America is the only thing standing between them and that happening. How come that hasn't happened this whole time that Israel's been there then? I mean, Assad has and his father before him have been friends with Iran this whole time. So that's completely stupid. And then and and just the whole frame that Trump is turning his back on the Israelis when he is the most, you know, even George W. Bush told Ariel Sharon, hey, man, enough with the bulldozers there for a minute. Would you please slow it down, pal? And like from time to time, what was he bulldozing? Just Palestinian homes or what? Yeah. Eminent domain, they call it here. <laughs> um, and uh, although in Israel, you know, you're lucky if they give your grandma a chance to run out the back door first, you know. Yeah. Um, in in former Palestine. Um, and then, uh, yeah, anyway, the way he's, uh, the way uh, uh, Booker is attacking um Trump. And then here's what he says. Booker says, I got to the United States Senate to stand up for Israel, for the state of Israel. That's what he says. To stand up for our allies, which he's just throwing that in. Our allies. That's why he ran for the Senate was for the sake of the Brits. No. He goes ahead and admits in the rest of his sentence what he means. For the state of Israel. And then... um, in a, this was previously reported in a different a time. He had given a speech to Israel where he said, "If I forget thee, O Israel, may I cut off my right hand." What? Wow. This guy's running for president of the United States. I can't even believe it. Yet that, um, well, it's fun sometimes, right? You know, like out of the mouths of babes kind of a thing, where the guy's so confident. That he doesn't really recognize how bad that sounds. And what if anybody else talked about any other country that way? Yeah, that's like the the new we came, we saw he died. Yeah, it's really out of control there, man. Uh, so the the basic point is what he, what he was trying to make was because Trump wants to pull out that's endangering Israel because our influence there is just that much less. Yeah. Which, you know, the real danger to Israel eventually should be Al Qaeda. Yeah. In in uh, Syria would be Al Qaeda and ISIS. But apparently they're not too worried about that. Uh, all they're worried about are well, they should is the Shiite side, which is why they backed the jihadists along with America and um, and Saudi that whole time. Yeah, which they shouldn't really be that worried because that uh, so-called Shiite side, or at least in Syria, is uh, doing pretty decent taking back Idlib and getting rid of the what's left of ISIS. Right. Which, you know, um, I don't know 
how far they're getting in that. It seems to be all in slow motion and hemmed in by, uh, you know, the politics of the Turks and the Kurds and all this other stuff going on where the Turks are threatening to attack the Kurds and the Americans are trying to hold them off while the Al-Qaeda guys are still sitting there and they're still by far the dominant faction in the Idlib province, uh, the Hyatt Tahrir al-Sham. And what is that former al-Nusra? Yeah, the okay. same thing. Al Jalani's group. And so, um, yeah, I don't know what's going to happen with that. Um, and people are saying, again, you see on TV, they're saying, oh my God, people are dying. But they're not mentioning that it's the government of the country of Syria attacking Al Qaeda fighters that are ensconced in one of their provinces, which doesn't mean it. that it's okay that, you know, any innocent f- civilians caught in the crossfire are just forfeit and tough for them. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying it's kind of important context, is it? They make it sound like this guy just wakes up to kill Syrians for fun in the morning. I mean, he gasses his own people. That's what they say. Um, uh, hey, do, is how like bad of a guy is Assad? Like, do you have any idea? Because I've heard you say like, oh, he's just the well. Look, before SUV the war, it was a police blah, state. Blah, blah, blah. It's a fascist police state. Um, it's well, a minority so ruled. You know, um, essentially a fascist dictatorship. And it's a coalition of the Alawites. You know, the very highest ruling caste there are the Alawites, who are like 10% of the population. And aren't they like former, like, Jesus followers? I think you said that on Tom's show. Uh, No, the the Alawites are more like a break off of the Shiites, uh, who are Arab, uh, you know, Muslim Arabs. Um, then there are the Druze. Like- the Druze are the ones who are a little bit Muslim, a little bit Christian, and a little bit Greek mythology. According to a Druze, I know. I don't oh, know cool. anything about it other than what he told me, but he is one, so I believe oh. him. But I'm just saying I yeah. hadn't read the encyclopedia about it and shit, but I'm just saying. Uh, okay, quick thing. And then you have the all Druze. different kinds of Christians. And then you have a whole bunch okay. of, I think, probably a plurality or probably even a majority of the Syrian uh, Sunni Arabs also supported this state there because the only alternative were a bunch of head chopping crazies. I mean, the rebels yeah. there were not moderates. Um, you know, it's an unfortunate fact that you can have a fascist dictatorship and the rebellion is made up of people who are even worse. And just because they're fighting against a tyrant doesn't mean they're fighting for freedom. In this case, certainly, it just means they're fighting for the power and what they're going to do with it would be even worse than what Assad is doing with it. So this, all of what I'm talking about is all null and void on TV. Assad is killing his people. Why do you love Assad so much? Blah, 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 blah. They never say what's going on there. That look, if it wasn't Assad, who would it be? If the Ba'athist regime falls, what is going to replace it? And why are you so religiously certain that it'll be better than this? Because, in fact, the Al-Nusra guy's slogan was Christians to the sea, Alawites to the grave. And so, and, and they had cut the heads off of Druze who had refused to convert. They murdered, you know, in, in 2012, there was a boy, it might have been 13, but I think it was in 2012. Right off the bat, you know, when the war was really getting going. And one of these jihadists said to this kid who had a... A vegetable cart. Um, I think it was an orange. And he said, hey, you know, give me a bargain on this. 
In fact, it was just a bystander, just some regular customer said, you know, hey, you know, let me give you a nickel for it instead of 50 cents or whatever it was. And the kid said to him, hey, I wouldn't give a discount even to Muhammad. And that was his figure of speech of saying, no discounts, dude. You pay the sale price for the orange. That's it. Well, an Al-Qaeda guy was standing right there and blew the kid's head off for daring to say that about Muhammad. Those are the moderate rebels from the very beginning of that war. So that's who would have been taking over the government in Damascus. And that's why you've never heard CNN ever once finish the discussion. In fact, man, I wish I knew who this was. I really wish I had written this down because I went back and I searched everywhere for this. Uh, and I could not find it on the internet anywhere. But I saw it on TV when it happened. And it was in you know, early 2012, I'm pretty sure. And it was a Republican congressman. And they said to the Republican congressman, well, so listen, if we are able to get rid of Assad here, then what do you think is going to come next? Seems important. And this is the only time I've ever seen them ask that this whole time. But they asked this Republican congressman that. And he says, well, we just hope that someone will come to the fore. In other words, he has no idea, but the Israelis want him to support regime change. He hadn't bothered to think about what the consequences might be. What are we talking about? Possible consequences now? Hell, I don't know. Someone will come to the fore. Yeah. From where? Nobody knows. Maybe they'll bring in Haftar, the would-be failed half-assed dictator of eastern Libya, and he'll take over Syria too, huh? Maybe he'll come to the fore. Instead, what are you going to get? You're going to get Jolani. That was your choice. Jolani or Baghdadi to replace Assad. So, it's not a matter of him being a humanitarian. It's a matter of him protecting all of the different minority groups from these would-be genociders uh, versus being dead and not being able to do so. And so me and everyone who was against this Syria policy this whole time were right and everybody else was wrong and they still are. And if you listen to them, look at the way they attacked Tulsi Gabbard. Assad, 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 Assad. They never discuss what's going on. What's he doing? What's the war about? What was the deal? And I think she's really falling down on the job. She ought to be shoving that right back in their face. If I'm pro-Assad, then you're pro-Al-Qaeda. I'm an al-Zawahiri. And his shock troops, they are the enemy in Syria, and you're on their side. So now I accuse you of treason. And so what the hell are you doing thinking that you're going to come at me? When she's actually, by the way, an active duty officer in the military. <laughs> you know. And that would be correct. That would be correct. That's who the enemy is of, of the state in Syria. It's Al-Qaeda. Now, again, I'm not for the war on terrorism. I'm just really, really against the war for the terrorists. Even more than I'm against uh, the war against them. Yeah. J- Jelani was who again? He's the leader of the Al-Nusra Front, man. Are you listening? Okay. Are, we, are we having the same conversation here, Phil? I hope so. <laughs> um, I 
I, I had a couple questions. So who were the people that were like somewhat connected to Jesus or like followers of Jesus? Well, there are all kinds of Christians in Syria, if that's what you mean. There are uh, Maronite like Christians. Group. They're, they're, well, I, I mentioned the Druze are they're partially Muslim, partially Christian, and partially believers in Greek mythology, according to my one Druze friend that I have. Okay. So and if, then, if that's what you're talking about. But there are Marianite and Chaldean and Assyrian Christians there, too, and maybe one other kind or two. I don't know. Okay. Yeah, I, you just brought that up on the Tom Woods week, and I just was trying to think of that. Yeah. But um, when it comes to the Druze, is that who they were talking about in Spaceballs? Is that who when, they were talking about in what? In Spaceballs. Re- remember when Barf goes funny, oh. she doesn't look Druish? No, that was more like a reference to the Druids, who would have been from, I don't know where, ancient Druidia. <laughs> Okay. Weren't the Druids, aren't they the ones that built Stonehenge? Like the ancient Celtic types or something from back a long ass time ago? And the... I don't know, man. I thought those I'm not aliens. so good on the ancient history, kid. But there are some Jewish jokes in there, too, right? Where he says, funny, she she's a Druish princess. That's a Jewish joke. And she doesn't uh, look okay. Druish. And then... No, yeah. like I thought it was like Jews for a sec. But then like there's actually people called like the Druze. So... I don't know. <laughs> anyway. King Roland is talking about how he got a great deal on Mercedes from his cousin in the valley. He was very nice to me. I love that movie. <laughs> That's a great movie. Uh, childhood staple. Um, okay, so we got some questions about Hamas and Hezbollah. Uh, just like breaking down those two groups, differentiating, yeah. which um, you know, you've done even on my show. But I'm actually really uh, – I want to know more about M.E.K., because they're kind of the opposite of them. And I haven't right. heard much about them. I know that uh, Giuliani likes to give speeches to them. He sure Sometimes loves them. Yeah. All right. So yeah. <clears throat> well, I'll do all of them. Okay. So here's basically the rundown. All right. Hezbollah was created by Israel, incidentally, accidentally. They invaded southern Lebanon in, well, much of Lebanon in the very early 80s to rouse the PLO out of there. But they stayed and persecuted the hell out of the local Shiite population. And so, and in alliance with some right-wing Christian groups, massacred them and this kind of thing. And Hezbollah, the party of God, was the militia that essentially rose up in response. So at this point, it's like a mini state. And it is and it, quite a bit an inheritor of the Iranian Shiite revolution that was happening right at the same time. Or really, it happened just before. And so, in a sense, you could say that Hezbollah really is, you know, Iran's Israel, you know, their 51st state over there, um, that they don't own and control completely, but that they have a lot of influence over. Um, It's not a perfect analogy, but uh, they have a very close relationship there. Then... um, and, and they fought and they resisted the Israeli occupation for 20 years and including with suicide terrorism and all kinds of madness and um, finally drove them out in the year 2000. And they've had peace since then, other than in 2006, there's a short border war um, that it was like kind of instigated by Hezbollah, but not really. First of all, there's some Gazans who were massacred on the beach the week before. And, you know, the Hezbollah sometimes gets into the tit for tat on the Palestinian side 
and they had kidnapped some Israeli soldiers in response, but then they were just going to negotiate them back, you know, for a couple of their own prisoners or this kind of thing. And instead, the Israelis took the opportunity to launch a massive attack against them, which actually failed. Um, they fought for about three or four weeks and then withdrew with a bloody nose. And Hezbollah didn't follow them or anything. They got a ceasefire, and that was the end of it. Um, it was pretty bloody, though. Um, and then, so Hamas... Um, Wait, um, just just one quick quick. Oh, thing yeah, go ahead. That. So, what conflict... Uh, was Reagan leading and the one that he regrets was that like the USS Cole or USS Liberty or those like no, irrelevant- no, no. so the Liberty no no Israel attempted to sink the Liberty back in 1967 during the okay. war with Egypt and Syria Ronald Reagan was president 80 through 89 81 through 89 um or really through 88 you know end of beginning yeah. of 89 yeah um and then the USS Cole was in 2000, in the Bill Clinton years, right before the election between Bush and Gore. So okay. you got to adjust your time frame a bit. But so Reagan, there was the civil war in Lebanon was from like 75 through 90, essentially for 15 years. And um, at part of that, Reagan got involved on the Israeli side and then realized that he shouldn't be doing that, picking sides over there. And he got 241 Marines killed for nothing. And then he thought better of it and pulled them out and did the right thing and ended the war or the American role in it at that point. From Ron Paul's guidance. Um, Nah, I don't know. He was (laughs) listening to Ron. I mean, a lot of people told him not to do it. I think he just realized it was crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Ron likes to talk about how in his biography, he says, I said I would never cut and run. But then I realized what I got myself into, and I realized the irrationality of Middle Eastern politics over there, meaning his inability to decipher who's Zoom and who and why. And so we just said, forget it, man. I'm not going to, you know, when you're in a hole, stop digging. Don't keep digging. So he was wise enough to go ahead and take the political hit from the Podhoritzes or whatever he had to endure in order to do the right thing there. Um, but now, so Hamas is a different matter. Hamas was deliberately encouraged um, in, you know, it wasn't outright created by Israel, but it was a small little like um, right wing religious social services network that they encouraged to become a militia, essentially, that they uh, suppressed all of their op- all of their opponents in Palestine, all other competing groups and financed them and gave them room to grow and and to become a right-wing religious militia, essentially, in order to divide and conquer the Palestinians as a right-wing religious alternative to the PLO that was, you know, heavily influenced by secularism and communism and this kind of revolutionary stuff, European, modern thinking. And so uh, what better way to divide them than to build up the right-wing religious crazies? And Hamas is essentially the Palestinian branch of the Muslim Brotherhood. And so they, you know, were inheriting the Muslim Brotherhood backing tradition from the Brits and the Americans there, which is an older policy going back. Um, and so, you know, they, uh, it, and it's just led to all these crises because essentially Hamas you know, they have a will of their own. They're also useful for influence by the Iranians. 
So, you know, they're without getting into like all these details and stuff, but there have been times when the Israelis are trying to actually deal with the Palestinians with, you know, the, the Fatah group. And then Iran just cranks up a little bit more support for Hamas and, and their rejectionism of whatever's going on or, you know, the, the, um, when Ariel Sharon started off the second intifada, when he went to the temple Mount and, and the second intifada was launched, you know, Iran cranked up support for Hamas then, I think, um, it's those kinds of things anyway, are the example of, of how, you know, this comes back to bite the Israelis, um, in 06, uh, Bush and Rice and Ehud Olmert insisted that they did not have to deal with the Palestinians as long as Arafat wasn't elected or as long as the Fatah group, or maybe Arafat was dead by then, but as long as the Fatah group wasn't elected, well, Bush said, well, you don't have to deal with them. They're not even the legitimate representatives of the Palestinian people at all. They haven't been elected at all. So you have to hold an election. So they held an election and Hamas won. And they didn't have the manpower to take over uh, authority in the West Bank, but in the Gaza Strip they did. and But still they sh- were sharing power with Fatah. But then, and the article is called the bomb, the, God, I can't talk today, the Gaza bombshell uh, by David Rose in Vanity Fair. And it's all about how Bush and Elliot Abrams, Mr. Redirection again, Mr. Venezuela right now, um, uh, very bad neocon. Uh, he was involved in Iran-Contra back in the Reagan years. Um, and he came up with a plan to arm up Fatah to do a coup and to uh, overthrow Hamas in Gaza. But they found out and got all the guns and beat the Fatah guys. And so now they don't even have a coalition government. Now they rule the Gaza Strip outright. Then that becomes, you know, the Israelis' excuse to put the whole place under a siege ever since then. Um, so, you know, and then, well, and it's a great excuse for the Israelis to never make peace and never give up. I mean, they're the ones in the position of strength by 10 to 1, 100 to 1. And then they say, oh, but we have no partner for peace. How are we supposed to negotiate with a bunch of terrorists who they created in the first place and who through their blundering and et cetera uh, have only gotten worse and more powerful and have, and because of the Israelis and their policies alone, essentially, they're the ones that the Israelis have to deal with. And so, um, you know, another crisis they made and another excuse to continue colonizing the West Bank, which is what they really want. And all while coming up with excuses and pointing fingers at Hamas in uh, the Gaza Strip. And then... Um, so the Fatah was basically kind of like a Israeli proxy against uh, Hamas? Well, at certain times, yeah. In, in the case of that, you know, attempted coup... In, yeah. in Gaza in 2006 and seven, Yes, absolutely. I, I'm just trying to understand who the yeah. Fatah is. We well, just see, now that Arafat's dead, I mean, yeah, look, see, what happened was the Palestinian Authority, this sort of pseudo-government, it was created under the Oslo Accords under the pretext that it was going to become the government of an independent Palestinian state. But essentially it was created by the U.S. and the Israelis for the Palestinians. And so... There's a lot of inroads there. You know, their police force, the Palestinian Authority's army, is trained by the U.S. Army. 
I mean, it's not an army. It's a police internal security forces. They're trained by the Americans and they're, you know, the Israelis control all their finances and this and that. And there are some very rich, corrupt Palestinians who rule the Palestinian authority in cahoots with the Israelis at the expense of the rest of the Palestinians. What if the roles were were reversed, they'd be called the capos. Right. The people who are essentially the trustees in the Israeli prison ruling over their other Palestinians for the money. Um, so, yeah. Now, the Mujahideen al-Khalq, well, they're a bunch of communists who, um, you know, whether they're really whatever degree of holy warriors, I don't know. I guess they were more holy warrior than they were communists, but they were kind of both. And they participated in all of the... Uh, protesting and uprising against the Shah's regime in the Iranian Revolution in 1979. Um, But then they were quickly marginalized by the Shia. Essentially, you know, it was a nationwide revolution of all factions that the Shiites came out on top of. And um, Yeah, it's like the Arab Spring. Yeah. So um, the MEK, you know, they had killed some CIA and some uh, American military and civilian contractors and stuff. And, uh, I think they, Wait, are, they, are the MEK, these commie guys we were, yeah, they're the about? commies. So they, oh, okay. they essentially pretty quickly fell out of favor with Khomeini. And then very quickly, Jimmy Carter had asked uh, Saddam Hussein or given him the green light, at least to invade Iran. And, um, so the MEK then got kicked out of Iran. I guess they had tried to kill the Ayatollah or, or some of his mullahs and attack the regime. And so the Ayatollahs had thrown them out and they went to Iraq and took Iraq's side in the Iran-Iraq war. And so that's why they have no support by the Iranian people whatsoever. Zero percent is because they're traitors who took the side of Saddam Hussein and the USA in the war in the 1980s. And then... They essentially lived in Iraq. Um, let's see. Oh, during the Shiite uprising and Kurdish uprising after Iraq War One, they helped Saddam put down uh, that uprising, and uh, particularly against the Kurds, I believe. Uh, there are quotes about, um, you know, uh, Myram Rajavi urging her people on to crush the Kurds in their tank treads and this kind of thing. Um, and then so they were protected at a military base there in Iraq all through the Clinton years. And then when Bush invaded in 2003, the Americans inherited them. And then <laughs> the Iranians said, hey, listen, if you give us these MEK guys, we'll give you all the Al-Qaeda guys we captured, which they had actually renditioned the vast majority of the Al-Qaeda guys they had captured back to their home countries to be tortured and murdered anyway. Um but for the one, the few that they had left, Al Adel and Hamza bin Laden and some of these others, they said, "We'll trade you all these guys for the MEK." They John carried them. Yeah, essentially. <laughs> and then, but but Bush and uh, and Donald Rumsfeld and Dick Cheney turned them down and said, "Nope, we'd rather keep the MEK to use against you." And then that's exactly what they've done, and they've worked for the Israelis for many years as well. Um, they launder Israeli intelligence into the public stream and. Uh, a lot of times bogus claims about Iran and their nuclear program over and over again, they've been busted. You know, they did publicize the Natanz facility, but it was already known before they did. So it wasn't, you know, they make it sound like they have this one big score to their credit, but not really. 
Um, and they do have a lot of fake claims about Iran's nuclear program. And they also are quite credibly accused of doing the assassinations against the Iranian nuclear scientists in the Obama years. And in fact, it was very clearly a Obama administration leak to NBC News uh, telling, you know, essentially, you know, I'm telling on you kind of a thing, the <laughs> Obama administration ratting out the Israelis to the American people that, look, the Israelis have been using the MEK to kill these Iranian scientists and essentially disting, distancing America from that Israeli policy. Um, wow. At the same time, though, they were being trained in the United States. As Seymour Hirsch reported, although this might have been Bush years I'd have to go back, but Seymour Hirsch had a piece about how they were trained out in Nevada in some, you know, their special operations guys and this and that. And then, so you mentioned Giuliani. Well, so there's all this, you know, probably Israeli, but definitely Saudi money and CIA money, I assume, I don't know, um, behind this group. And then they spend so much of that money on public relations. They have a group called the NCRI, the National Council for Resistance in Iran, and they do all this lobbying, and you can find this. Uh, it's pretty easy to find on the internet, you know. Uh, internet lives forever. And you see where they just hire bums and pass out bright yellow brand new t-shirts and hire a bunch of homeless people from Washington to come and fill out crowds and pretend yeah. like they have this big popular support. And, you know, they sell their cult leader. And I should say about, you know, I should talk about the group a little bit. They really are like a cult, like Bowen T, the Heaven's Gate cult. Um, you know, the, the husband has been dead for probably 15 years or something. Nobody's seen him this whole time, but they refuse to confirm that he's dead. Cause I guess that would put a question mark next to his magical status as a, you know, uh, unearthly being or whatever. And then his wife, Myra Mirjavi runs the thing. And according to essentially all takes other than their own, they have all kinds of forced celibacy. They separate the parents from the children, which is the ultimate black uh, blackmail against the parents that they better, you know, cooperate because their children are, you know, in another country under the care of other cult members. Um, they have to raise their hand to talk like they're, you know, kindergartners in school and they're that level of submission to their authority inside the group. And, you know, forced celibacy, did I say that already? And just yeah. all kinds of, like, really crazy, culty stuff. You know, no protein for you. We don't want you critically thinking a few sentences in a row or anything. You know, this kind of madness. And um, you ever see that King of the Hill <laughs> where the niece joins the cult? No. Anyway. Um, no god dang way. And uh, so, yeah, man, so they're a bunch of nuts. And they work for the Israelis and the Americans. And... Um, they were used by Dick Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld to gather intelligence inside Iran. I know that. I think the Israelis were the ones behind using them as assassins. I'm not so. I don't. I don't think the CIA was doing that with them. But, as far as I know. But that's like the the fake CIA funded opposition versus like the actual Green Party opposition in Iran, right? Well, you know, I mean, I think the the Green movement is they are essentially, you know right-wing mullahs too um and uh so for that reason yeah i think their support is a lot more legitimate on the other hand i have seen where uh, fake dan mcadams has sure. reported where those groups did get american money i mean uh, and so look the ned and usaid if anything it shows that they're smart that 
they give money to groups that actually have a prayer of getting out there and causing some damage, right? So I guess you could say they're good at what they do. And that okay. that doesn't mean that they are 100% responsible for everything that happens as much as it reveals what they want to see happen and that they're willing to do whatever they can to, you know, try to force these issues. I don't know if it's really true or not, but it's certainly suspicious what's going on in Russia and in China right now. And, you know, this worked in Iran in 1953. Uh, it's not so hard to do sometimes, you know, to just make sure that um, that it's doable. On the other hand, you know, I, I have seen people like what's going on in Hong Kong where they're saying, look, it's all crowdfunded, you know, like all these people are feeding each other, essentially. Um, and they don't need George Soros to come in and some some big NGO to do it. So, you know, it's hard to say exactly what's going on there, but it sure is suspicious to see this many people taking off work for this long at a time. Uh, you know, not that they don't have legitimate concerns, but it's the same thing in all the color revolutions. Uh, the question is, which side is are the Americans intervening on for our purposes? You know, it's not a question of who's, who's right and wrong there. It's what is it that the Americans want to see and what are they doing to affect that change? You know? Yeah, totally. And they um, do it a lot and they're pretty damn good at it. I mean, you look at all the color coded revolutions in Georgia and Serbia in Ukraine twice in 10 years in Tajikistan temporarily. Anyway, they tried and failed in Belarus um, but it's a pretty tried and true method, especially from the Bush junior years there. They got a lot done. So, yeah, you mentioned, uh, is there more opposition happening in Russia as of late? I haven't heard of that. Yeah, there's big protests there, which you know what? Their economy's down and whatever. If you read the Washington Post version, everybody has plenty of reason to protest. But, uh, you know, there's an article by, uh, I'm sorry, I forget his first name, Symes at the National Interest today. Um, about how Biden and Hillary Clinton both did intervene in 2011 and that, um, you know, he even quotes Biden essentially threatening Putin. This was when Putin was the prime minister and Yedvedev was the president for a little while there uh, before Putin came back. And Biden had said it would be good for the country and it would be good for his health if he stayed out. Like, what do you think that Vladimir Putin is going to do when you talk like that but can't really back it up? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, that's not a threat at all. And and Hillary Clinton and Biden both were, you know, outright uh, supporting verbally, at least, the uh, uh, protests that year. And uh, I'm not exactly sure the details of the funding, but and, and I forget if Symes mentions that or not. But it's certainly been accused that the NED and USAID were, and, you know, American NGOs were trying to bankroll the Russian opposition at that time. You know, Carl Gershman, in November 2013, the chairman of the National Endowment for Democracy, wrote this thing for the Washington Post, where he goes, oh, you know what? We're getting away with this thing in Ukraine. And if Russia doesn't like it, you know what? They might find themselves on the end of the next one of these. Essentially, I could pull it up and get the exact quote for you, but it's Carl Gershman from the NED in the Washington Post, November 2013, and it ends with threatening the Russians with regime change in no uncertain now, terms. Now, I've heard you talk about the Ukraine coup, but 
I wasn't aware of like the stuff that we were doing in Russia, especially under the Bush years, you said. Well, no, this would have been in, in Obama years when Hillary was the secretary of state and Biden was the vice president. In the Bush right. years, it was not Russia itself, as far as I know, uh, but it was many of their allies and all those color-coded revolutions against Amer- uh, you know Russian-friendly politicians in those countries. Yeah, totally. Um, okay, I, I just want to know one last thing. Who are the Kurds? Like, why are they significant? I mean, why do they? We really care about them. Like, I hear they have oil, but it's not like a whole lot of oil. And then, yeah, that's right. I also heard you bring up the uh, the Anfall campaign on yeah. uh, when you were on Bob's show the first time. And I think, uh, based off my research, like, or even you might have said, but I think we saw like Iraq uh, weapons that ended up killing a bunch of Kurds. So I guess maybe that's uh, we feel guilty about that because we sold. Nah, uh, guilty has nothing or? to do with it. I mean, so the first question the is, what, what, why, why should we care or why shouldn't we care? Well, it's an interesting thing. It's going to it's going to be a cause of conflict essentially from here on because that, it's a giant still there. It's a giant region full of an ethnicity of people. They're, you know, not Arabs and they're not Turkic exactly. And, you know, they're their own different sort of ethnicity. They're mountain and, people. Huh? They're mountain people. Yeah, well, I mean, mostly because they're running like hell to the mountains because everybody's always trying to kill them. I don't know if that was really where they were from in the first place or not. But the deal is this, man, is if you look at the map, look at northern Iraq, then northeastern Syria, then southeastern Turkey, northwestern Iran, and then even up into Azerbaijan and Armenia, you have this region that is pentasected by nation states that in no way mean to give up that territory or allow those lines to change. Now, I'm no ethnic supremacist or anything, and I don't think state borders should have to be drawn by ethnic lines, but this is the curse of the old world, right? Is everyone wants their national boundaries, but none of the boundaries are in the right places, other than maybe in some places where you happen to have a river where just since time immemorial had separated these people from those or something like that. But essentially, all of these borders were drawn by the British all across Africa and Asia and, and you know, other imperial powers, too. And so um, it's the curse of the old world that this just leads to constant struggle over you know, massive populations of people who are in minority or oppressed majority uh, positions inside other people's states and wish things were different. And so, you know, this is one of the things that Woodrow Wilson talked about in his 14 points was he wanted to see an independent Kurdistan, that every independent nation of people ought to have their own nation of people. And not that, you know, he had the ability to carry that off. All he did was expand the British Empire a million square miles. Nice try, Wilson. But anyway, um, so the Kurds essentially, you know, they're completely divided up. And so in northern Iraq, you have a perennial conflict, I guess, or a contest for authority between the Barzani clan and the Talibani clan. And I forgot, I think Talibani died a couple of years ago. I forget which one of those guys. Um, But they're, 
you know, they essentially have a pretty stable relationship with the Shiite government in Baghdad. Then you have, you know, the dominant faction of the Kurds in Turkey are the PKK, who are leftist revolutionaries. And they used to be Marxists, but now their leader, a guy named Okalan, is now a Bookchinist, a follower of yeah. Murray Bookchin, who is sort of a left-wing uh, anarcho-syndicalist um, American. But, you know, we saw they basically had like a leftist anarchist type uh, thing going on there in uh, northeastern Syria there for a time during the war when they essentially had independence by default since the Syrian army withdrew and they called their little independent land Rojava and and had their Bookchinist society there for a while for what it was worth. Uh, until they had to team up with the Americans to protect them from the Islamic State that the Americans had, I think, unwittingly turned into a massive caliphate that had conquered all of Western Iraq and then therefore needed to be fought. It was it was fine when it was pressuring Assad. It wasn't supposed to blow all the way back into Iraq the way it did. But anyway, um, that's the YPG group, the and they're basically cousins, the Syrian cousins, uh, politically speaking, of the PKK in Turkey. And then in Iran, I don't know very much about the Kurds in Iran. I know there was a group called PJAK that was backed by the United States for a time there against Iran that was tied to the PKK, again, leftist revolutionary, uh, uh, Kurdish, you know, secessionists. And I would be suspicious anytime I hear of Kurdish separatists causing trouble in Iran that the Americans see an opportunity there. Um, Wait, you don't think that would happen? No, I think that would. And I would say always, always have your eye out for that because it's happened before it happened during the redirection, Um, preparing the battlefield and all those, all those Seymour Hersh articles from 2007, boys and girls, (laughs) there's a (laughs) lot of nuggets of things in there you need for context for today. I'll tell you. Um, and then I don't know so much about the Kurds of Armenia and Azerbaijan, but I know that there are some that, you know, their region even travels up in across those sovereignties at some points. And yet they all identify as Kurds. Yeah, they're all Kurds That's in the same way crazy. that crazy. Yeah. So and then and I'm sorry, what was the second part of that question? Oh, I mean, does the Anfall campaign not? Really oh, the Anfall campaign. Yeah. So this is, you know, this is a if I have the chronology right i think it's right that what had happened was in the nixon years kissinger had made a deal with the iranians is when iran was still america's friends and sorry kissinger was um he was the national security advisor and or secretary of state there for a time under nixon and then ford okay um and so Kissinger, I think the deal was this is he coined the phrase that you're better off being America's enemy because then at least you know where we where you stand or something like that. And that was because he was talking about himself betraying the Kurds. Um, and uh, so what it was, was if I remember it right, they made the Iranians. I just read about this in Trita Parsi's book. So they convinced the Iranians to help them back the Kurds against Saddam Hussein, who was tilting toward the Russians at that point. And then but the Iranians didn't want to do it or the Kurds didn't want to do it. 
unless they knew that they had Iranian support too, because they knew that the Americans were going to leave them high and dry. And then the Americans and the Iranians left them high and well, dry. Because they knew at that point that um, that that Iran wouldn't uh, fight back against America, or like, like both sides wanted to avoid a conflict. I think they just thought they wanted a, a better commitment from the Iranians that, you know, even if the Americans screw us, you're going to help us see this through kind of a thing. And then instead, okay. the Americans and the Iranians both betrayed them, and Saddam clamped down and launched this massive ethnic cleansing campaign against them and killed like 100,000 people and used chemical weapons to do it. And see, people, it's funny because people always focus on the Halabja massacre in 1988 when Saddam had taken revenge against some Kurds who had fought on the Iranian side in the war um, by gassing their village with, I guess it was sarin. Um, but the Anfal campaign was much worse, but it happened much earlier when I guess the idea was it was a lot more clear that he had a friendly relationship with the Reagan government. And the Halabja massacre at the time, they tried to spin and blame on Iran. And the DIA put out this fake report blaming it on Iran. I remember Jude Winiski had fallen for it and had continued to champion that for years. Um, when it was Iraq that had done it, but he had done it with American weapons and or at least European chemical weapons that he had bought with American money or that he had you know, made with European recipes with American money in, in factories that had been built with American money. Wait, so Iran did not gas these cards? No, it was, it was Iraq that did. But the point being that really, Halabja, as bad as it was, was almost a limited hangout compared to the full infall campaign, which was a devastating campaign against uh, one or another faction of Iraqi Kurds that... I from I'll have to go back and look, but I think, and really this should go in the book, man. Uh, you know, as I mentioned, um, I guess I don't have that much of a tree. I guess I do have some on the Iran Iraq war in there. Anyway, but uh, basically to, to sum up the Ampol campaign, it's this is uh, when Saddam was our hero Iraq. still, huh? This was when Iraq was still our, our wonderful ally against the horrible Iranian revolutionaries. Okay. And these Kurds were siding with Iran, so we just decided to bomb these Kurds. Well, not we, but Iran. Saddam did, yeah. Iran, Iran, Iran. And then, look, and oh. the Hawks all pointed at this and said, look, this guy Saddam Hussein's a butcher. And it's like, yeah, but look who's talking. You're Colin Powell and Dick Cheney and George Bush's son. And Donald Rumsfeld, the guy literally in the picture, shaking hands, making the deal to sell him germs and chemical weapons. <laughs> so, of course, he's a monster. He's used guy's former employee. Why can't you just make a deal with him? His Why weapons is, expired he's a threat. killing us. He's a threat. He's a threat. Well, send General Powell over there to read him the riot act. Send Donald Rumsfeld back over there. If General Powell, the Secretary of State, is too much of a wimp, send Donald Rumsfeld back over there to shake hands and tell him, this is the last time we're shaking hands, dude. And you're going to live up to your end of all of the following diktats. Do I make myself clear? And you know, just as well as I do, as well as anybody listening to this knows, that Saddam Hussein would have said, your wish is my command, sire. And that would have been the end of that. In fact, he did try to surrender to Richard Pearl. 
and sent his um, Najee Sabri to London to meet with Richard Pearl and tell him, dude, we'll give up the oil, we'll hold elections, we'll cut off all support for Hamas. What do you want us to do? You want to send in, you can send in the FBI, the CIA, and the U.S. Army. Not in his invasion force, but to look for the weapons. Believe me. And Richard Pearl told Sabri, you tell Saddam, we'll see him in Baghdad. Unconditional surrender is not good enough. And even when Bush announced the war, he says, 48 hours, you have 48 hours to leave Iraq before American troops arrive. Uh-huh. Making it very clear they're coming no matter what. If Saddam and his sons had left that night, the invasion was still going to go forward. Well, what does that tell you? Well, wait a minute. If Saddam and his sons left town and the next mustache in line is in charge, you're not going to give him a day to take power and declare fealty and compliance? It was right there in the speech. Jesus. And so uh, Kurds don't really have that much oil? No, in fact, the, the oil that's near Kirkuk that was under Kurdish control, the Iraqi Shiite army just marched right in there and said, later's for you, and they turned around and left. They just walked out. They didn't even have a firefight. They just turned around and left. And the Shia have dominance over even the northern oil now. I think they're sharing it with the Kurds. I hope they're sharing some with the Sunnis, but I don't know. That's something else. Ask me about Iraq War three and a half right now. Tell me about Iraq War three and a half, Scott. It's terrible. See, what happened was the Islamic State got smashed at the end of 2017, but there's still a low-level insurgency in western Iraq, and there's a new Pentagon report saying that ISIS is coming back in Syria and in Iraq, and that may be true. Again, when they say ISIS, now that the state is gone, the Islamic State, they really just mean al-Qaeda in Iraq. Anyone can be ISIS if they say. Huh? Uh, it's a belief system. Like anyone can be ISIS if they pick up a rifle. Yeah, I mean, kinda. But in Iraq, in Western Iraq, there really is such a thing, and I don't know that there's much insurgency going on outside of the game that they have. I mean, it could be. Certainly during Iraq War Two, they labeled all insurgency Al Qaeda and whatever. Uh, but nowadays, I think that's probably pretty much right. That it's not a broad scale. Sunni insurgency now it's a small one and it's essentially ISIS left doing the fighting and that's saying it is Al-Qaeda in Iraq from in other words the worst part of the Sunni insurgency from Iraq War II is what the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria is so but the thing is is you can't defeat them completely and the last time what happened was it was the local Sunni tribal leaders and the Baathists actually turned on them and marginalized them out of power had made a deal with Petraeus a ceasefire with Petraeus he said, I'll stop targeting you, and in fact, I'll start paying you if you guys will get rid of your friends in Al-Qaeda. And they made the deal. Really, they had been offering it to him, and he finally took the deal. Um, and so, uh, you know, at this point, I don't know that those other Sunni factions, those tribal or Baathist factions are around or have the strength to marginalize these guys anymore. And I think that... You know, this military report says, oh, Trump said we're leaving and started drawing down in Syria, and that immediately benefited these groups. Now, on one hand, just look at the contempt that the military has for Donald Trump, where they're willing to just outright contradict his policy to such a strong degree. Um, 
all of his generals have come out essentially in public denouncing his Afghanistan policy as well for wanting to withdraw from there. Um, but in this case, this new Pentagon report says, well, uh, Trump threatened to draw down at all in Syria and Iraq, and now ISIS has gotten a lot worse there. And I'm just here to predict war there forever, essentially. Iraq War three and a half. if Iraq War three was the war against the Islamic State in Western Iraq and Eastern Syria, Iraq War three and a half there, that unending counterinsurgency campaign, again with America back on the side of the Iranians and the Shiites, uh, although they would protest and deny it, that wow. war is going to go on from now on. And I think the Sunni kings are going to continue, you know, of Arabia, they're going to continue to back that insurgency too. And God, so it. for the rest of our lifetimes, they're going to be flinging suicide bombers at Shiite Baghdad, trying to take back 2003 through eight, and they can't. But and, it's three and a half because we're siding with those Shiites. Well, and because it's a, it's a it's a much smaller level war compared to the war against the Islamic State, which was a state which had conquered, you know, five major cities and or six major cities in eastern uh, Syria and western Iraq, and you know, a population the size of Great Britain under their control, and with conscription and taxation and 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 seizing the government administrations and and administering them, running them. Um, and so, you know, they really were a state there for a while. So compared to that, you know, I call the Bill Clinton years Iraq War One and a half, because Iraq War One, it was a war for a few weeks there. But then one and a half was the permanent state of siege that persisted after that. The no fly zones and the blockade and the endless UN inspections. So this is more like that. You know, it's it's a smaller anti-insurgency campaign than you had during Iraq War Two. Um, and certainly smaller than what you had with the full-scale war against the Islamic State. But it's going to be going on. You know, they just had a Marine was killed by friendly fire over there. And I think this is the kind of thing where the Americans can make it worse, but they cannot solve it. They essentially, uh, they can help the Shia get it down to the level that it is right now with massive bombing campaigns and all that they did to win Iraq War Three. Now is probably the best time to cut and run. And to say to, first of all, Jake Tapper and all of them, screw you and your pro-Al-Qaeda policy. We're not listening to you. Uh, you know, centrist government establishment uh, consensus here. Um, but in the region there, for the Iranians and for the Iraqis, for the Syrians and their, you know, Hezbollah and Russian allies. And for the Sunnis of eastern Syria and western Iraq. Now is your best chance to really marginalize these guys out of power. And it's not going to be easy or out of, you know, influence. It's not going to be easy. You're going to have to give the people the say, for example, the Shiite power in Baghdad is going to have to give young Sunni fighting age males something to live for other than fighting. Or they're going to have a continued fight. But if we stand in the way and help them to clamp down on all resistance, then we're preventing the proper incentives from lining up to get them to change their policy. I mean, the Shiites have been incredibly sore winners ever since 2003. And now they've been in a horrible revenge mode since the Islamic State, because after all, the Islamic State was just merciless. But so I've read quite a few reports, and I really need to delve into this more, um, but I've read quite a few reports about uh, how the 
Shiites are treating the defeated, the re-defeated Sunnis in their victory at the end of Iraq War III here. And it's just absolutely terrible. Torturing them, murdering them in the streets. Uh, all of the widows of the uh, ISIS fighters or alleged ISIS fighters, um, who the ones who haven't been shot are being you know, processed through court like sausages through, you know, railroaded through and hanged without any chance of defense for themselves. This is the Shiites who are governing Iraq treatment towards the Sunnis that are still there. That they've defeated in Iraq War III and they're just grinding their heel in their face. And then all the women in the refugee camps, all the widows are all being raped by the Shiite fighters at night. So all the refugee camps are full of ISIS widows and their Shiite rape babies. A whole generation of them now, like years of this going on. No accountability, no one to stop them. And the idea being, oh, you like ISIS, huh? We'll show you ISIS. And then, so they go throw them off a building or torture and kill them in the street and act just like an ISIS fighter would. Eye for an eye, pound for a pound, and and no truce, just revenge. And you know, so America, America should not be in the middle of that. We got rid of the Islamic State as a state... I was against that too. But anyway, now is the best time to quit. If the Shiites don't want a permanent Sunni bin Ladenite insurgency against them from now on, they are going to have to figure out how to be more magnanimous in their unparalleled victory here. You know, you would think that the neocons would treat, you know, the Shiite leaders in Iraq uh, the same way they they look at the Houthis because they're Shiites, you know? Yeah, but they're the ones who put them in power. So now this is what happens when America goes into a country and leave. Yeah, but see, this is the good point, right? Is since they're the ones who put them in power, they don't want to admit that they just empowered Iran. So now they still think that the contest hasn't already been lost. The contest has been lost, but they think that there's still a contest between America and Iran for who can have more influence with the government in Baghdad. We have more money and weapons, and they might have, you know. Thousands of years of history in common, in culture and language and religious beliefs, but we got money and weapons, and so don't you need us more than you need them? And it's like, so that's the game the Americans are still continuing to try to play. And so you'll notice this all the time. They'll be like, the Iranians are taking over the region. They've grown in influence in Syria and in Yemen and <laughs> and other places <clears throat> too. Because they don't just don't want to admit that, yeah, because you hawks gave them Baghdad. Yeah. And plus, they'll probably also throw back at our face that if we pull out, then, of course, the leaders in Iraq and Syria and Russia and Iran are all going to have to come together and figure out how to, you know, get rid of this, uh, you know, this new ISIS. But if they all work together when we're not there, then the Hawks might be scared and think, well, if they can do that together. And what could they do t- together against America right. and their allies? And, you know, I'm just kicking myself because I did the Tom Woods show again, and I was answering a critic who was saying, well, we're it's smart to back Al-Qaeda and Iran against each other to weaken them all the time and playing them against each other. It's like uh, Sun Tzu, the art of war and all this. But no, all we're doing is empowering both. We're not weakening both. And that's what I should have said in the first place. And I'm mad that I'm like the wisdom of the stairs where I'm later on i mean i described that but i didn't say that explicitly that look at what you're talking about you're talking about overthrowing secular leaders in either three-piece suits or olive green 
secular Western garb in favor of religious war by the Shia on one side and Al-Qaeda on the other, which empower them both, and which increases the security threat to American civilians more. And you know, if you go back to the clean break and coping with crumbling states, I think it's in crumbling that David Wormser says, yes, it's true, and this is 96. He says, yes, it's true. If we go through with this, it could empower this new, you know, Bin Ladenite jihadism. That's all the rage and the reason now. But uh, we're not worried about that. Ultimately, these nation states are a greater risk. And so if this does, in fact, end up empowering these religiously motivated terrorist types, then we'll just have to deal with that later. He says it in there. So, you know, like Madeleine Albright, you know, we think the price is worth it. And then, but they're never held to account, right? They hate us because we're free, not they hate us because we listened to David Wormser and Madeleine Albright that told us that the price was worth it. And the price is not worth it. But anyway. So we're going on pretty long here. Was there anything more on there? No, no, that's it. We're good. All right. Well, thanks, Reddit people, for your questions. And sorry I haven't been hanging out in the chat room. I've been so busy lately um, trying to get all this stuff knocked out for you guys. Uh, Ron Paul book coming very soon here. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah, dude. All right. Well, thanks, Phil. Thanks, Scott. Bye. Appreciate it. All right, you guys. That's the Q&A show for uh, what's today? August the 13th. On Tuesday. Yeah, man. 2019. Yo.